has been said, uh, today's scripture will be from Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. This is the very word of God. All right, well, this is the third of our sermons on the Song of Songs, which we have said is a collection of, longs, of love songs, more specifically, a collection of romantic love songs, more specifically, a collection of romantic love songs that celebrate the physical expression of that romantic love. So, this is, of course, the week for Valentine's Day, and there is, as you would expect, plenty of good marriage advice to be cultivated from the Song of Songs, um, but it comes to us, of course, in the form of poetry. It comes like a painting uh, in an art museum in order for you to get all that you can out of the Song of Songs, you have to sit in front of it. You've got to talk about it, discuss it. You've got to ponder it. So maybe a good piece of a marriage advice for you who are married uh, this Valentine's week to have some conversations, if you haven't yet already, with your spouse on the themes explored in this song. Now, uh, several of us, though, have been talking um, in our missional families and in teams about the interpretation of the Song of Songs. And, of course, we also find that it's, it, is, it does give plenty of marriage advice because it is about that. But it's about more than that as well. As part of Holy Scripture, it does not end with just the marital relationship. There's something about romantic love, and yes, even its physical expression, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, specifically next Sunday. You should come back next Sunday. Um, but there's something about romantic love and its physical expression that we have to understand. We've got to comprehend in order to understand the gospel story which is itself a love story. 
which is itself, as we just sang, an embodied physical love story. We sang in Christ alone who took on flesh. This is one of the most distinctive realities of the Christian faith. We said it in the Apostles' Creed. The idea that the God who made all things would become one with us, sharing in our humanity. So there's something about this romantic love, this very embodied, physical love that we have to comprehend in order to fully comprehend the gospel story. Now, this morning, we're taking a look at Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, I'm not convinced that the Song of Songs is to be read as a continuous uh, story or a narrative. I don't, I don't know that there's a plot to the entire Song of Songs. Different commentators have attempted to do that. Uh, I find myself more convinced it's a collection of songs, but they do go together in some ways. And at certain points in the song, we do find something of a story, something of a narrative, something of a plot. That's especially true of the text that we're looking at this morning, where we find here essentially um, three mini-stories that the female voice is telling us. This is the woman, we might say, speaking to us in the song, and she's telling us uh, three mini-stories of love from her perspective. Now, I mentioned this last week. I feel like we kind of have to keep saying this over and over again. Uh, The fact that this is coming to us in a female voice is not meant to sustain any type of gender stereotypes that we might have. I mean, I think you're going to find some resonances with what feels like stereotypical things throughout the stories that we'll look at. Um, But this is not to be read as this is the way it should be for all women. This is how it should be for all men. And that's also true as we begin to read the song theologically. It would be incorrect for us to think that when the woman speaks, this is uh, the perspective of us as humans. And when the man speaks, this is God's perspective. You're going to find all of us seeing truths from both perspectives. We need the whole picture in order to get the whole story. But these three stories, I think, do go together in some way and tell us something especially about the importance of commitment in love and intimacy. The importance of commitment in love and intimacy. A couple of years ago now, I, two, three years ago, something like that, I went to get a haircut and um, so, you know, it's just a strange time, especially if you don't go to the same person. I don't. I just, what do I, I go to Great Clips. You can just, like, sign up ahead of time and show up. I just want to be in and out as fast as I can. So I just never know who's going to cut my hair. But on this particular day, I sat down, and, you know, you just you got to say something to the person who's touching your head. And so I, I, I started a conversation and, you know, just small talk. I began to ask this young lady about, what about your family? And she very quickly made it clear to me that she had uh, some broken relationships in her family. And as she began to tell me about, uh, very briefly about that, she ended by saying, I hate men. Well, that's really awkward. While she's holding the scissors to my hair, I can say it shut down the conversation. 
I was very careful about anything that I might say. It became pretty clear to me that this woman was lacking in what she was longing for, commitment. Her heart had been broken. And without commitment, love cannot last. We know that that's true. We kind of get that point, but as we sit before the painting this morning, let's explore uh, this, this topic of commitment in love and relationships. And in these three mini-stories, I want to speak to us first about the role of commitment, second, the search for commitment, and then finally, celebration of commitment. The role of commitment, the search for commitment, and the celebration of commitment. Okay, let's begin with the first mini-story that the woman tells in Song of Songs, chapter 2, the text we read this morning, verses 8 to 17. And we notice here especially the role that commitment plays in love and intimacy. So in verse 8, the woman calls attention to the voice of her beloved. Notice that's how it begins, the voice of her beloved. But then she quickly turns and paints a picture for us of him coming to her, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. She calls him in verse 9 a, a gazelle or a young stag. And then she says, behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. And here is where we can certainly veer off course in our interpretation. At least one commentator here calls the man what some of us have maybe thought when we read verse 9, calling him a peeping Tom. But that's surely not right. His intention is clear in the next verse. He has come to her to catch her attention. He wants to speak to her, not merely to gaze at her without her knowing. Because it's his voice that she has already alerted us to in verse 8 that she wants us to focus on. And now she begins to tell us about his voice, what it is that he says to her in verse 10. Now, the man's speech, as told by the woman, continues to at least verse 14. But verses 10 to 13 come with their own unique structure. They begin and end with the refrain, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Here is this lover inviting the woman to go with him somewhere. Verses 11 to 13 describe vividly the scene that he is inviting her into. The winter is past, he says. The cold, rainy season is over. It is springtime, the time in which the flowers have blossomed. The time of singing has come, he says, with the voice of the turtle dove heard in the countryside. And then in verse 13, he invites us to imagine not only the sights and sounds, but also the smells, the figs, the blossoming vines giving out their fragrance. It's a very sensuous, embodied picture that he's painting. And it's a tasteful scene that he's describing, of course, one that we can easily relate to. I mean, even in the South... We, we uh, welcome, I hope you do, the arrival of spring. I mean, the winter is long and cold enough, right? Let's get to spring and I'll bring on summer. I don't care. Like, I love it. Um, we want to we go outside. That's what happens in the springtime. 
all of you people who say you love winter. Yeah, but you like to be inside in winter. This is time to get outdoors and, and feel the warmth of the sun, beckoning our bodies to feel with all of our senses the wonders, the beauty of the world that God has made. But the man's speech continues to verse 14. And in, but in verses 11 to 13, the man has explained why she should want to come outside. There's some beauty out here. But in verse 14, he explains why he wants her to come outside. Hmm? <laughs> He's already called her his love and his beautiful one. And now he calls her his dove as he says to her, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. In other words, he wants the woman to come outside with him. She can see the beauties of the world around, but he wants to see her. He wants to see her face. He wants to hear the sweetness of her voice. And notice, not only in the clefts of the rock, but also in the crannies of the cliff. In other words, everywhere he looks. As beautiful as the flowers and the sound of the birds may be, as pleasing as the smells of spring may be to the senses, the man wants the woman to join him because she is to him the ultimate beauty that he wants to put his gaze upon. And it's springtime, right? We're talking here May or even early June since in Israel the rainy season lasts usually through the month of April. So it's May or June. This is a near universal image for romantic love. I asked... uh, Taylor Feemster, who's taken a lot of pictures of weddings, I, I just asked her two weeks ago, I said, just off the top of your head, when, what are the months that you do the most weddings? And she said, May or June. Yeah, that's it, right? This is the time for love making. If we have any doubt that this spring setting is meant to communicate this sense of romantic love, Then notice verse 14, the word translated face twice in verse 14 is not the usual Hebrew word for face. The ESV translates it face, but it's not the word for face. It's the word for the form, the entire figure. That's what the man wants to look at. He wants to see her, all of her, everywhere that he looks. Now, What's interesting here, however, of course, is that these are not technically the words of the male speaker. This is the woman's story. This is the story that she is giving us. This is what she's hearing the man saying to her. It's not a narrative. It's a poem. But the woman is the artist at this point. Now, I would say, I think I speak for a lot of men, that she has pretty accurately captured the male perspective. But... She's giving us here her perspective. What is the picture she is trying to paint for us? Now, one thing to notice is the fact that this mini-story, which goes through to verse 17, it ends with, again, the woman speaking of her beloved as a gazelle or a young stag. So that's not an insignificant part of the picture. It frames the entire painting of this first mini-story. 
elsewhere in the Old Testament, the gazelle is a metaphor for someone who is swift of foot, 2 Samuel 2, 18. But it's doubtful that the woman is simply telling us that, wow, this guy can run fast. <laughs> the whole image of the man leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills as quickly as a gazelle is itself a metaphor of something else. By the time we get to the end of the first mini-story, I think we have a pretty good idea. At the end of verse 16, she says that he is grazing among the lilies. And we wonder if this is some sexual innuendo. Our suspicions are supported by verse 17. He had invited her out to enjoy the spring beauty with him, but now she invites him in to enjoy further pleasures all night, she says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. She again then uses the imagery of the gazelle or the young stag, but notice verse 17 how it ends. She's telling her beloved to go be like a gazelle or a young stag, and she says on cleft mountains. It's another innuendo of her own body and its pleasures. Yeah, that's the perspective that the woman is painting. So what we have here described for us is a scene in which both the man and the woman are, they're in the mood. How else can I say it? Ready to enjoy each other to the fullest. But the key component of this intimacy in this first mini story is found in verses 15 and 16. Since this is the woman's story, I think we should read verse 15 as her words as well. Song of Songs 2.15 is one of the most difficult verses in the song. All the commentaries just go different directions with this. So what, what do we do? <laughs> well, I'm convinced that the, most, um, that the most important part to understand Song of Songs 2.15 is the, the first word, the word catch or seize. I think it's the best clue to deciphering its image because if you, if you look down for a moment at Chapter 3, verse 4, which we're going to come to in a moment. There the woman talks of finding her beloved, and she says, I held him. That's the same verb there that we find here at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 15. So I take it that in chapter 2, verse 15, catching the foxes means essentially finding her man, finding the one. She's speaking here on behalf of all the other women, each of whom wants to have their own fox caught, seized. She goes on to describe this desire then in verse 16. She is stirred up by the voice of her beloved precisely because what has gotten her in the mood, if you will, is her confidence that this is the one who belongs to her as much as she belongs to him. My beloved is mine, and I am his. For love to flourish, there must be the assurance that lovers are committed exclusively to one another. It is this committed and exclusive relationship that lays the foundation for the intimacy of love. Now, the second story from the female voice is found in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here she tells of 
rising from her bed to go look for her beloved. When she finds him, she holds him tightly until she is able to bring him home to her mother's house. Now, this mini-story ends with the second occurrence of the adjuration to the daughters of Jerusalem. But the distinctive element of this mini-story is the theme of seeking and finding. Notice the words for both a search and finding all throughout these, the, this story. Verse 1, I sought him, sought him, but found him not. Verse 2, I will seek him. I sought him, but found him not. Verse 3, the watchman found me. Verse 4, when I found him. It's not hard to relate here when it comes to our experience with love and intimacy, is it? Love, however it might be understood, is something you have to look for. You have to seek it out one way or the other. And what we are truly looking for is not so much love, but the commitment that is the foundation for real love and real intimacy. And yet, here's the thing. This is a search that has to happen over and over and over again. On my bed by night, the woman says, and the, the, the language here seems to refer to an ongoing, repeated action, nightly, repeatedly. It's not that once there is some level of commitment, the search is now over. No, that's a huge mistake, but a very easy one to make. Even though a person has every indication of a commitment from a lover's promise, Commitment has to be shown over time. Let's take a closer look at this mini-story. In verse 1, the woman expresses her desire for her beloved, but she also expresses a disappointment that comes as she seems to be unable to find him. Now, it would be a mistake to begin to ask questions, well, where did he go? Or to begin to wonder if maybe he's being unfaithful to her. That's not the way that we should read this, I don't think. The poetry here is not intended to point us in that direction. That's not the, that's not the theme that's being explored. This is, a, this is a, 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 the story, the woman's story, the picture from her perspective. It is a painting of a picture of yearning and frustration. And also a sense of satisfaction that comes when that yearning, that desire, that longing has been fulfilled. Commitment is something that we must have for real love and intimacy. But ironically, commitment is, by definition, something that is proven only over time. Now, in verse 2, the woman resolves to get up and go looking all around the city for her beloved. The city probably stands here for the opposite of the privacy of the nature scene in the previous mini-story. This is a public place. Security guards roaming about on their nightly patrol. And when the woman is found by them, we, we catch our breath. We wonder what's about to happen. We feel the tension of the moment as we are told, 
practically nothing about this encounter with the watchman other than the woman simply blurting out to them, have you seen him whom my soul loves? And that's the point. The encounter provides yet one more opportunity for the woman to express her yearning for commitment, her hope for catching her fox. (laughs) The one whom her soul loves, the man of her dreams, we might say. Finally, in verse (coughs) 4, she finds him. And when she does, as we've already seen, she says, I held him. I wouldn't let him go. She's going to hold on tightly to him until, verse 4 goes on to say, I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. From the public place of the city, she brings her lover back into the privacy of her mother's house and into the intimate place of the bedchamber. Now, I know that sounds not very romantic to us. I, I get you. But... We get the point here that this is meant to tell us that this is a place of intimacy. Now, the mini-story ends right there, leaving the rest to our imagination, just like a good painting does. Even as the woman goes on here to issue the second of the song's adjuration to the broader audience, to the daughters of Jerusalem, and thus to you and to me. Do not, she says, now for the second time in the song, stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Within the theme of this mini-story, we might meditate on this theme of commitment and the search for it as the foundation of intimacy. And what might we conclude? For one thing, the need to search for commitment repeatedly while it can be frustrating is actually part of the enjoyment of the relationship. As one commentator puts it, absence and longing leads to search and discovery, which results in intimacy and joy. So do not despise the searching for commitment, the effort and the hard work that it requires, the long conversations, to work through some conflict, the dry periods in which it seems like you have just become roommates and not lovers. These are difficult times in any relationship. Indeed, they can be dangerous times. Relationships don't end. Commitments aren't broken when the intimacy is at its height, but when it seems to have escaped us, just out of reach, just out of our grasp. And yet, without those moments, intimacy will stagnate. To put it bluntly, married couples may well need some help with the actual moments of intimacy, and you can get plenty of books to give you (laughs) plenty of advice. But what you also need is something that no manual could ever give you. So you mean sex gets better over time? Well, yes and no, but it's not really sex that you're after. What you crave is intimacy. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller observes, by the way, great book. I think we got a few copies back there on the thing. If you need 
Valentine's Month. You should, if you haven't read that, you should get the book and read it. Read it as a couple together. Fantastic book for young and old alike. Anyway, Tim Keller observes in his book that when his wife first held his hand, you remember the moment, guys? He says it was, quote, an almost electric thrill, <laughs> a buzz that he says he doesn't really get anymore four decades later. But a moment's reflection proves, he says, that that initial buzz came not so much because of his love for his wife, but because of the flattery of knowing that she had chosen him. There is a degree of love in that, he says. But it does not compare to the love expressed all these years later with the same holding of the hands. He says this, listen to this. We know each other thoroughly now. We have shared innumerable burdens. We have repented, forgiven, and been reconciled to each other over and over. There is certainly passion, but the passion we share now differs from the thrill we had then like a noisy, here comes a simile, don't you look at like a noisy but shallow brook differs from a quieter but much deeper river. Passion may lead you to make a wedding promise, but then that promise over the years makes the passion richer and deeper. So here is a principle that I think about often and would commend to you today. It applies to so many aspects of our lives. Leaving is easy and can be electric. Starting over has a romanticism to it that is really appealing and may feel liberating. And sometimes in all sorts of relationships, there's no other option, and I get that. But staying is much, much harder. And yet at the end, there is a reward that is much, much greater and yields no comparison. That is the biblical ethic for the exclusivity and the longevity of a commitment in marriage. It's for your deep and abiding joy. Now, this takes us to the final mini-story that the woman tells here. It's in chapter 3, verses 6 to 11. And, and when you get to this story, it is a surprise. Um, it's one that easily confuses so many questions to be asked about this picture. But it ends with the summons to, again, us, the song's wider audience in verse 11, saying to go out and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of, heart, of his heart. It seems to me that, that this picture is here to help us celebrate commitment. And it does this with, well, what else but a picture of a wedding? That's what a wedding's supposed to be, right? We've come to celebrate the fact that here's a couple committing themselves forever, for better or for worse. Remember the vows that you made? 
It's a celebration. And, and what else will do but a lavish royal wedding? I mean, we got to, this is a great celebration. So the poet invites us to look with her out toward the wilderness where we see something approaching like columns of smoke. There's so many themes to be, to be explored here. The wilderness coming. We even sang a song this morning about um, the wilderness, God coming from the uh, Anyway, Exodus. All right, let's move on. This rabbit trail. Um, but here we see something approaching like columns of smoke. And we're encouraged not only to imagine the scene, but imagine the smells. Smells of myrrh and frankincense and other fragrant powders. We, we don't know yet what this thing is, but we get the hint from the smell that this is something expensive, luxurious, that's heading our way. The poet tells us, finally, in the, or the next verse, not finally, what it is that's coming here. The ESV says it's the litter of Solomon. <laughs> I need a different word. Um, this is, of course, how rich and famous people would sometimes travel. You've seen the sight. I don't know if it's Aladdin, Beating the Beast, some Disney thing. You've, yeah, I've, you've seen it before. This is an enclosure for one person carried by poles on the shoulders of some really strong dudes, right? You get the picture here? That's, what, that's what's being described. But what's important is the one who's in the enclosure, yes? I mean, who's going to be in this extravagant carriage that's being brought? This is Solomon's entourage, an, an awesome royal sight. Notice he's surrounded by 60 mighty men. Solomon's father, David, famously had 30 mighty men. No, th this guy, he's got double the amount. So this is a luxurious scene. The, 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 um, the carriage is made out of the finest wood, verse 9. It's adorned with silver and gold, verse 10. And in addition, look what it says here. The interior of the carriage was inlaid with love. It's a surprising description since we had wood, gold, silver. But it's turning our eyes away from the objective realities of the entourage to its subjective realities. It's what the entourage represents that the poet is trying to get us to focus on here. And it's not so much Solomon, who is exactly the best representation of commitment in marriage anyway. So if you're looking at Solomon like, what? No. Solomon is here as a great example for luxurious, over-the-top celebration. A wedding like the kind of wedding Solomon would have, given all of his access to resources. No need to save money here or there. No reason to skimp on the cake or the whatever things you've got to get for your wedding. No reason to do all that. You've got an infinite supply of luxuries. And he's coming near. He's approaching. The woman's story ends in verse 11 with the call for her audience to go out, look upon King Solomon. Attention is drawn to the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. Again, a surprising description because we know nothing in Jewish history, in the Bible, of a mother crowning the next king or of some crown being given on a wedding day. So it's, it stands out. This is not the, a picture you'd expect to see. 
but it draws our attention, right? What's the crown? What's it mean? The whole idea here is on the wedding day as the crowning moment for this royal person. It's the happiest day of his life. Verse 11 calls it the day of the gladness of his heart. Not the day in which he was made king. His real coronation day was the day he became one with his beloved. And yet, this great day of celebration is really a day that could only be the height of his, of his life only when it's looked back upon many years later. Solomon here is portrayed already with a crown given to him on the day of his wedding, but the approaching entourage makes it seem that the wedding hasn't yet happened yet. This is what artists do, right? We've got here a picture of past, present, future, all mixed together to communicate to us the crowning moment of commitment. If you are married today or maybe ever will be, may this be true for you and your spouse. May you get to the end of your life and be able to look back and say, the crowning moment of my life was that moment that I gave myself to another. Let us work hard for it, brothers and sisters. Let us get help when we need it, and we all do. And let us fight for joy in our commitment to our spouses. But, as we said two weeks ago when we started this series, even that, even that day of commitment, even the pledging of marriage and the coming together to be one flesh together, even that is only a picture of a joy that is available to all of us, single, married, no difference, through Jesus. The Song of Songs is not clearly cited in the New Testament, but we do find in this particular mini-story another song in the Old Testament that sounds very similar. And I want to close this morning by asking you to turn to it. It's the 45th Psalm, Psalm 45. This psalm, by its inscription, is indeed a love song. <laughs> and when you look at it, I want you to notice the parallels that you see to the Song of Songs, the one we're looking at now and really the whole thing. And by the way, Psalm 45 is cited in the New Testament. We'll come to that here in a moment. Take a look. Just We're going to scan through it. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Who is this one in the entourage? Who is this one coming to us from the wilderness? Well, one thing's for sure. He is blessed. He's luxurious. Look what it says, verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. You got 60 mighty men. No one's taking this guy down. 
Verse 4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And here's the, here's the verses that are quoted in the New Testament. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is cited in Hebrews chapter 1. Therefore, it says, God, your God, has anointed you, look at this, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hebrews 1 makes it clear that these verses are telling us of the great king who we now know his name. It's Jesus. Hear, O daughter, it says in verse 10, and consider and incline your ear. Here's the message to us. Forget your people and your father's house. The king will desire your beauty. Just take a look, the psalm is saying. Take a look at this king who is blessed forever, who has all luxury, who has all power, who has all might, who has everything you've ever wanted. God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. And this is a celebration. This is a love song. It's a celebration of his wedding This is his moment of greatest gladness. Is this too uncomfortable for you? The day in which he so pledged himself in commitment to his bride, bringing many sons and daughters into glory. That is the crowning moment of his life. Is that how you think of your Lord? Who desires you like that? As I left from getting a haircut that morning, neck still intact, head still on my shoulders, I kept thinking the whole time, what do I say to this lady? Don't say anything. Just survive. But I couldn't help as I thought about it and all the disappointment she had undoubtedly endured I gave her a really big tip, and I said this, I hope you find the man of your dreams. It was a double entendre, we might say, because that man does indeed exist. The one who has made a commitment to his people and will never, no, never, Go away. However far you may have strayed from your true love, brothers and sisters, he is still there. In the waters of baptism, you have been marked, our catechism says, as the Lord's. You are engaged to be his. You belong to him. This God the God of the Christian faith, Jesus of Nazareth, does not merely tolerate you. 
he loves you. And as Psalm 45 says, what is left to do then but to yield to him? Enter into the joy of your lover, king. Let us pray. Father in heaven, the greatest love story ever told is, in fact, a love story. A story of a God who loves so infinitely, so passionately, so energetically, and yet so persistently. Steadfast love. The Bible says over and over and over again, loyalty to his commitment, loyalty to his covenant. That's the God of the Bible. It's the God made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. It's the God who has come so intimately near. He wants us to know a love we've never known before. And when we know this love, it will, the same love that created the world, will transform the world. A new creation will begin to emerge. Indeed, if anyone is in Christ, there we see a new creation. Expand our imagination for your infinite love that we too might become people who keep our covenant, people who keep our promises, even if it hurts, even if it costs, because this is the God of infinite committed love. Teach us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.